Hey, Bubblies. Today's episode is very different from any episode I've done so far. I will not be discussing a show or movie or actor with anyone, but instead I'm sharing with my listeners some recordings I did for our library's podcast. At the start of 2022, our little library here in town launched its own little podcast as another medium for us to share our library information and updates with the community. Then I wanted to try and do a little more with it and add a segment where we bring up various topics. So I decided to do that with the March episode, and it happened to be on Disability Awareness. March is Disability Awareness Month, and I was joined by two disabled individuals that were willing to share their stories and engage in these conversations. The first hour is Laura and Misty, my guests, sharing some of their stories and experiences. The second hour is the three of us discussing terminology. Content warning for the second half. Since we will be discussing outdated words and phrases, the R word does come up. The last five minutes is a short interview I did with Jenny Brenler from a local nonprofit organization in Madison, Wisconsin called Community Living Connections, and she tells us a bit about what they do. Why am I sharing these and not an actual episode today? Since the library podcast is so locally focused, I wanted to give these very, very good conversations a chance to be heard. So thank you all for listening today. March is Disability Awareness Month. What is Disability Awareness Month? On February 26, 1987, President Ronald Reagan officially declared Proclamation 5613, making March National Disabilities Awareness Month, a way to increase public awareness of the needs of people with disabilities. To help celebrate this month, I am joined by two people who are willing to share their experiences. I want to thank Laura and Misty for agreeing to join me on this in this conversation, and I hope our listeners find this insightful and motivates them to work to ensure inclusion and equity within their community. Hello, Laura and Misty. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I'm ever so grateful that you two have agreed to be here and share your stories. So we will start with just doing that super fun thing of going around the room and saying a little bit about ourselves. And we'll go ahead and start with Laura. All right. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm Laura, obviously. I guess most of the time I work in cybersecurity uh, in state government. But uh, occasionally when I get the opportunity, I also work in disability advocacy for personal interest, of course, but also just it's worth doing. Um, I have a disability called cerebral palsy, sometimes pronounced cerebral palsy um, or abbreviated CP for short. It's a neuromuscular disability as it's classified, but it's actually resultant of brain damage typically sustained prior to the age of two. Um, In my case, I was not born with it. Um, It was the result of almost dying in a life-saving surgery as a newborn. Wow, thank you. Uh, And Misty? Uh, I'm Misty, and I am unable to work because of my disability. I do have a degree in engineering, but I got that just as I became ill, so I've never actually been able to join that career. Um, I have chronic fatigue syndrome and severe asthma that both came up about six years ago. And for the first two years, I was still pretty functional. But then I spent about four years, um, about 90% bed bound. 
And only in the last month have I finally seen some improvement. So I'm finally getting back on my feet. Good. Well, glad to hear that. We'll get right into the first topic. Now, we have like a nice list of topics to discuss. We're not going to get to all of them, but my hope is that we will eventually hit a little bit of everything over the course of uh, some handful of uh, interviews and recordings. But I think today we will go ahead and start with the mental disability versus physical disability, or also kind of known as invisible disability versus the visible and we'll go ahead and again start with Laura. I guess this topic kind of hits closer to home for me now than it did earlier in my life as a disabled person. I didn't, surprisingly, I, I didn't and haven't come into contact with a lot of other disabled people in my normal day-to-day life. That was true as a kid as well as now. Um, but I am also a parent, and um, my youngest son has dyslexia, dysgraphia. He's also on the autism spectrum and um, has ADHD as well. And, you know, most of those things are are not something that you would be able to tell without the appropriate training just by like looking at him or observing his um, speech or, you know, the way he plays or anything like that. So in a large degree, his would be considered an invisible disability Whereas mine, with cerebral palsy, um, you know, the degree of it of it being apparent varies from individual to individual. But for me, I walk differently than other people. Definitely not what's considered normal. <laughs> and uh, you know, there's some other physical characteristics as well that kind of give it away. Um, I can hide it in certain scenarios, like if I'm sitting here uh, at my desk, or um, you know, at work, you, you wouldn't be able to tell. And I, I actually had a situation where that happened is uh, when I first started um, my job back at the university, I met a few people and they came in while I was sitting in my office chair and I just didn't get, get up. And maybe, maybe they thought that I was being rude, but honestly, I was just really nervous and my legs get kind of spastic and shaky when I'm nervous. So I didn't stand up and <laughs> Uh, you know, later they saw me walking down the hallway, I guess they were behind me with my boss and they told me, you know, after the fact, after we got to know each other that, uh, they had turned to my boss and said, is she, is she okay? Does she need help? <laughs> so it's kind of funny how like in certain scenarios, like if I'm working with people over the phone or something, I can totally get away with appearing to be able-bodied, but I, I can't when I'm standing or, or walking. So I kind of get to straddle the line of invisible and visible at times, which is, you know, I, I've learned to have fun with it. <laughs> but it can also make for really awkward situations. But even, even when it is visible, you know, it's it's been interesting to see how that that develops in terms of like interaction with other people. You know, I have disabled parking privileges and I, I use them. Uh, predominantly in wintertime, but I use them whenever I feel like I need to. And I have been scolded on occasion by like elderly individuals or or others, you know, using obvious mobility aids because I'm not disabled enough. Hmm. Uh, so it's, it's really interesting how that 
there can even be, I don't know, kind of policing of of one's disability within the disability community. So yeah, it's there are a lot of layers to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, Misty. Yeah, my situation is, is, well, it really shows how disabilities don't fit neatly into boxes. Mm -hmm. Because for my son, who is autistic, you know, you generally think of that as a, you know, mental and invisible illness. But it's pretty easy to tell with him from the moment you meet him. He has a speech impediment, um, makes him a little hard to understand. And he's also um, very social, but very socially awkward. So within the first few seconds of meeting you, he's going to ask an awkward question with a speech impediment. So you're pretty much going to know like, okay, there's, there's something different about this kid. So his is actually more visible than mine. Chronic fatigue syndrome is called the invisible illness because, you know, if someone is coming over to visit, I save up my energy so that I can sit up in the living room and hold a conversation with them and, Maybe my voice will get hoarse because that happens when I get tired, but they might not ever see any symptoms of my condition. And I also have uh, handicap parking. And while I've never been questioned on it, I'm always like on guard to be questioned because I know that that happens and I know that I don't look disabled, but they don't understand, like they couldn't understand unless they ask that the walk from the vehicle to the mobility device in the store is like my entire day's energy sometimes. That's all that I have. So a longer walk through the parking lot would mean I can't go to the store. Mm -hmm. So uh, sometimes I walk with a cane or a walker if I know that I'm going to be walking a longer distance. But other than that, you really can't see my physical disability. It's all about pain and weakness and exhaustion. And those things are invisible Mm -hmm. and they come and go. I think that's a big part of it too, is like one day I might need a cane and maybe the next day I don't. And that doesn't mean I was faking it or trying to look disabled when I used the cane. It just means I'm having a good day today Mm -hmm. and I wasn't before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you ever feel pressured to like, I don't know, uh, more prominently display your disability sometimes? Yeah, especially in public. Like, I feel like I'm really surrounded with excellent people. My family and friends are great. So I can just like tell them how difficult things are and trust that they will believe it. But when I'm in public, yeah, I often feel like I'm being judged. Like, oh, she's just riding the mobility scooter because she's fat. Or, and people don't understand that I'm fat because I'm sick, (laughs) not the other way around. And, it's hard, you know, even though nobody's actually said anything to me, those things go on in my head. And I feel like, oh, maybe if I just walked with a cane, they would understand. But why burn my energy so other people who are strangers will understand that I'm disabled? Yeah, I mean, I have felt the competing pressures here socially since I was a kid. Like, on the one hand, do I try to normalize myself as much as possible? And, you know, I did err on the side of that line as a kid because I have a twin brother and we competed about everything. But, you know, there's there's clear limits to what I could do, what I can do uh, on that front. And I was never, from a physical standpoint at least, I was never going to measure up. Um, so then there's the other side 
well, okay, do, do I make my disability more of a focus? Do I make it more of my like obvious identity in order to, to maybe, maybe avoid judgment, like you say, but in my case, it's, it's like both of those things. I've been judged for not being disabled enough. I've been judged for being disabled. Um, like I had to actually file a wrongful termination suit against an employer because that was the grounds on which they fired me. Um, uh, but on the other hand, um, I have found that because sometimes my disability does not look so profound when set against someone else's that um, I am ignored. And, you know, that, that happened recently. Uh, we, being my husband and myself, we went out to California recently uh, as a surprise for his brother's 40th birthday. So we don't really get to see them very much. And one of the things we did, one of the birthday activities was we toured a winery. Beautiful winery. Like a whole castle was built. It was amazing. And I was loving the basement because it was all ramps. Smooth, level, beautiful ramps. I'm just like, these are the best things ever. I don't want a basement like this. They're so wide. They're so gentle. Oh, this is great. Who needs stairs, right? But, you know, we the, before we got to the basement, we were touring the, the ground level of the castle and, you know, the upper level to go see, like, over the battlements and everything. Um there were lots of stairs. Uh, and uh, there was another person on the tour. Um, and, you know, they explained that she was using crutches because she had gotten a pretty significant leg injury and was still recovering. But she was more towards the, the tail end of recovering from that injury. Um, it was most of the time the crutches were being carried for her by the people with her. But when we got to the first set of stairs, and it was only two steps, uh, the tour guide stopped and asked her if she was going to be okay with using the stairs, but did not afford me the same courtesy. Mm. And that was just a really interesting thing to witness. Do you think mm. in a situation like that, and okay, and in this specific situation, do you think that the host uh, or the guide or whatever should have just posed it as more of a general question? As Absolutely. opposed to singling someone out and then therefore leaving someone else out? Yeah, because I don't know if if that person was comfortable with being called out like that. Is you know, I have a feeling that perhaps they wouldn't have explained the reason she was using crutches if nobody had pointed it out in the first place. Like, why would you feel the need to explain yourself on a winery tour? Mm -hmm. Like, do you know? So there's that side of it too. Like, you know, I felt bad for her because she may have been put in an awkward situation. I, I, you know, I didn't follow up asking because we were there for a winery tour and I should let people enjoy that. I, you know, I'm curious, but I try to be tactful about it. Right. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, from a tour guide's perspective, they she had multiple... Uh, apparently disabled people, whether temporary disabilities or not, on her tour. Plus, you know, you could have you could have people with invisible disabilities, or you could have elderly people, or you know, 
uh, you know, take your pick. Any any person can have difficulty with stairs for some. I mean, you could have someone who just has a phobia of stairs. I wonder what the name of that is. <laughs> but it, yeah, it would have been much better posed as a general question because it would have been considerate to everybody. And I don't think that people who were able-bodied enough to not have to worry about stairs would have thought twice about it. Right. Because I wonder, how would you have felt if they addressed just you and the person with crutches? I don't get embarrassed by that like I used to. I mean, if you had asked me that when I was a, I don't know, 12-year-old kid, I would have been angry. <laughs> like, no, I'll I'll bring it up if I've got a problem. <laughs> like, don't don't point don't point me out. I hate being the center of attention because of my disability. But you know, now I, I just I just kind of it's weird. I'm not bothered by it, but at the same time I feel obligated to make them feel okay. Mm, yeah. Does does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, it does. Uh, I think like the takeaway from that story is like, don't make assumptions. Because mm-hmm. I imagine that they made an assumption about you that like, oh, she she knows what's going on. This injured person is new to crutches, you know, but you're probably not new to your disability. But how do they know that unless you told them? Well, so, that brings an interesting point. I never thought of that kind of judgment. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so many layers. Yeah. <laughs> It's a complex issue. And, you know, it's not just a disability thing. People are a complex issue. And you just really... That's the truth. You be careful with your assumptions about anyone. Right. And I think we all can catch ourselves making assumptions about a person. You know, the first impression bias is a thing. And you start making those impressions when you first meet a person, whether you mean to or not. So I think it's important for everyone to to be mindful of that when they're interacting with anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like the the guide tour probably thought that they were being so courteous mm-hmm. by offering that to this one specific person but not realizing that it it may have I don't want to say did more harm than good, but it definitely brings up a lot of good points and conversations i.e. today and and everything. So, and again, that level of assumption and that I think Misty, that is a really good point of maybe the tour guide assumed that, ah, Laura, she's, she's old hat at this. She's got this. She doesn't need any, (laughs) anyone to point it out to her or anything, but, oh, this poor thing on crutches is, is new to it. So let's, let's pause and put this person in the spotlight and make them (laughs) uncomfortable, even though, and it, I think that there's a lot of that, a lot of that. And you know, hopefully people are able to expand their understanding and expand what they think they know about anything and everything, really. So, mm-hmm. Misty, is there anything you would like to add to kind of the invisible versus visible and how it's not a nice, neat little package? Yeah, I I think it's all been said. <laughs> okay. So the other topic that uh, we had agreed to discuss is the parenting aspect of either being a parent who is also disabled and or parenting a a disabled child. So you both have experiences in this. Um, Laura, would you like to share some some of your experience, some of your stories? Yeah, well, like I mentioned earlier, um, my youngest son is on the autism spectrum 
and has some other things as well. But, you know, I, I thought <laughs> naively that growing up in this area and, and uh, having the experience as a kid growing up with a disability in the school system and everything else would prepare me for everything that I've had to deal with in terms of advocating for and, and preparing the school staff for um, my son. And I was wrong. I don't want this to be taken the wrong way because like every disability has its challenges, visible and invisible difficulties, you know, good days, bad days, all that. But generally speaking, I found that advocating for myself and, you know, prior to me being capable of doing that, my mom advocating for me to be easier because my disability is apparent. It's it's tangible, whereas for my son, it's not uh, to to a degree like he no longer has a speech impediment. He had one when he was younger, um, you know, all, all credit to him there. He really wanted to keep working at it. And he, he's to a point now where only the doctors can tell. He, he used to talk in his own made up language. Um, now he doesn't do that anymore. Still has a, a vivid imagination, but applies it differently. Uh, you know, um, his motor skills have come a long way. So, you know, and he's always been, as far as gross motor skills go, fantastic. So he's always been able to like run, jump, climb, do all of those. Is he going to survive the day because he's doing these crazy things? <laughs> um, things. And that's, oh gosh, that's that in itself is terrifying. Like he was free climbing the outside of a tower at a playground that I would not be able to like follow on or catch him if he fell mm -hmm. and he was to get down he literally hung by just his hands and and moved down down the tower and mm -hmm. I'm like you know in my head I'm like wow he didn't dislocate his shoulders what do I do and then I'm like what do I do if he falls I will not be able to catch him I won't be able to get there fast enough and even if I do well how can I save him you know and I struggle with this uh on so many levels because like for kids on the autism spectrum again it, it varies just like cp does but you know he can be very uh quickly overstimulated by busy environments loud environments or um unexpected significant deviations from his routine and you know that has manifested into sometimes dangerous behavior like running out into the street because uh, he doesn't want to wait to cross, um, you know, and there's a car coming. I can't save him. So I struggle with this all the time because, it's, you know, I, I've, I've been told by his doctors and by his teachers and, you know, just people who know us that I'm doing a great job being his mother. But at the same time, I'm like, can I really do enough? I don't know. And I feel like on some occasions, I've, I've kind of gotten that treatment from others as well. Um, you know, there's the general consensus still, whether people voice it directly or not, that disabled people shouldn't have children. 
uh, that disabled people can't even participate in that aspect of life at all. So, you know, I, I, I meet with that kind of interaction on occasions on occasion as well. And, uh, yeah, I, I definitely can feel when judgments are happening, you know, that, that, yeah, maybe things aren't being said, but body language and general demeanor, um, can make even like interacting with other parents very interesting. Um, and you know, it's not always just about him though. I have two other kids who are physically able-bodied and, um, as far as we know, do not have any other like mental developmental disabilities, uh, of any kind. Um, and Monday night this week, I uh, went to a band concert for my daughter. Um, it was at the high school. She's in middle school, but they like to do theirs there for some reason. And the, the entrance is very deep set from the parking lot. So there's a huge sidewalk kind of courtyard they have to go through to get to the front door of the school and it's not covered. And, you know, uh, for, for people who have uh, limited energy at their disposal, I could imagine that crossing that courtyard would be enough. <laughs> you know, it was a lovely concert and band is really important to her. So I'm glad that I went, but Monday night had uh, that winter weather warning. An ice storm was approaching. It was expected to start around 8 p.m. And for once it was accurate. So by the time we got out of that band concert, all the salt that they put down, and it was a significant amount of salt, all of it washed away by the rain. And what was left was an almost complete sheet of ice. There were there were pockets where there may not have been, but it's still wet. And I was trying to get to my car, which was parked in a disabled spot as close as possible to the entrance, but still. And I got about three to five steps out, hit some ice with uh, the leg that has the most trouble with it. And I realized that I couldn't take another step. And I was left standing there because I couldn't turn around. I can't reliably walk backwards. Just left standing there in the storm, in the dark, and people just streamed by. Oh, I get it. Who wants to be out in that weather, right? I don't blame them. But there was no like school staff people or anything to, to be out there for safety reasons or otherwise either. And I don't know how long I would have stood there. Maybe I would have tried crawling to my car. Um, but I was fortunate enough to be approached by a kind stranger who helped me to my car. Um, we still slipped a few times, um, but nobody fell, thankfully. And I was able to get to my car safely and, and get everyone home safely and, you know, go on with our lives. But I felt, again, selectively invisible. I felt more fragile than I have in a long time. And just not humiliated. I'm not, I have no problem with admitting I need help from time to time, but demoralized. And you know, I had a, a rather strong emotional reaction to it. So I delayed calling the school district for a couple of days to try and compose myself. 
I called high school, the middle school, the district office, you know, facilities, grounds, equity and inclusion, administration, the whole works, left messages for everyone. One person called me back. And it was not a person in a position of power to do anything about it. But she listened to my story and decided to send off more emails to advocate for doing something not only about never repeating this kind of event again, but doing better for not only the disabled students, but their parents, disabled parents, and anyone else who may have struggled with that, the weather or, or just the way the schools are set up. And I don't know if it's going to eventuate in anything that's meaningful or impactful in terms of creating a change, but it really highlighted for me why um, the Disability Awareness Month is so important. Um, and disability awareness in general is needed. I mean, we've been around forever, literally. Like you can read historical documents uh, about, you know, what they used to do with disabled people in ancient civilizations and, and whatnot. We have been around forever and we're not going away and you can join us at any moment. And yet here we are still talking about ourselves as individuals and as a community and as part of the community at large. And we're always fighting to be seen or heard. And being a disabled parent and knowing that I'm bringing up another generation of someone with a disability in a world like that makes it very difficult to bear sometimes. Wow. Dang. That's, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about, I know, Laura, you had mentioned that you did not have a a pleasant experience earlier in the week and that you were saving it for today. So thank you for, for sharing that. I am so sorry that that happened to you and everything. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, hopefully they can make, at least that school district can make a, a step in the right direction in terms of like making sure something like that doesn't happen again for an event like that. And especially yeah. in these Midwest winter months that, Love to be so up and down. So I'm going to give it my best shot. That's all I can say. Well, good on you. And I, and I think also just giving yourself those couple of days too to, like you said, compose yourself. But yeah, thank you, Laura. Uh, Misty. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right that if there was a long walk up to a school, I probably wouldn't have even been able to go in. But had I gone in, I most likely also would have been stuck, scared on the ice and unable to find the strength to hold myself up. And that's always been a, a concern of mine since I got sick because weakness can just strike. And, you know, usually it builds a little bit over time, but sometimes it just happens and my knee just buckles out from under me. I just don't have the strength anymore. So, you know, things like trying to walk on ice or uh, my son is in orchestra and the first few orchestra concerts that we went to, you know, you have to bring them early, but then there's not enough time to go back home. So then you're, you know, you're sitting there for like an hour before they even start. And an hour of sitting up is about all I get. So by the time they're actually on the stage and playing, 
I'm exhausted. I'm in pain. My heart rate is up. My vision is blurry. I'm super sound and light sensitive. So how am I supposed to enjoy an orchestra concert like that? You know, so I understand that it's totally important to him being, you know, my parents coming to my band concert was totally important to me when I was a kid. Um, so this last concert, I, they live streamed it and I watched it online and it was really nice to have that option because I was doing particularly bad at that time. And I, I just would have had to miss it otherwise, but it's still, you know, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same for either of us. You know, he mentioned that he was sad. I couldn't come and, you know, those are the the little things, little day-to-day things that I think able-bodied parents take for granted and probably even grumble about, like, oh, I got to go to this middle school concert. But, you know, those are the things that I would love to be able to do again. And our situation is kind of unique because I've only been sick for six years. And like I said, those first two years were a slow downward track. So even when I started getting sick, I never knew how bad it was going to get. So we used to go on walks. We used to like walk down to the local beach and we used to go to parks and just all this activity. And now, you know, lately I've been able to leave the house, but for like four years, just getting from the house to the car and then sitting in the car driving somewhere was a really big deal. So you know, birthdays come around and they're like, I want to go to the Kalahari. I want to go skiing because their birthday's in January. I want to, and oh, they wanted to go ice skating this year and I couldn't go. And so it feels like, even though they have a wonderful father and it's so great to have his support, I feel like they're still not getting a full two parents worth of parenting. And as much support as I get from my husband, there's also this sense of guilt that comes with being supported. Now, every night when I can't cook dinner and he cooks dinner every single night because I can't stand up at the stove for 15 minutes, I feel bad. And he's never made me feel bad about it, but it's still there. You know, before I got really sick, we would alternate nights and I love to cook and I loved, you know, seeing my family enjoy something that I made and I haven't had that. And then with Henry being disabled, so I have twins and uh, one boy and one girl and Henry is autistic and uh, Kathy is neurotypical and Henry takes a lot more patience than the average child might. And I don't have a lot of patience if I'm in pain and tired. And so it's so hard because not only am I not seeing him very often because I'm sleeping 12 to 14 hours a day, but the hours that I do have with him, I can't be the patient and compassionate mother that I want to be. I just find myself needing to remove myself from the situation so that I don't just get angry and snap. Um, And hopefully that's going to change soon. Now that I'm feeling better, I have felt like it's, it's a little easier to deal with things that are going on with him lately, but just the energy that it takes to repeat everything three times because he wasn't listening and to, you know, correct the same behaviors as the day before and the day before and the day before, 
you know, now I can kind of smile and chuckle about those things, but in the moment it's exhausting and I'm already exhausted and I want to help him grow to be everything that he can be, but I'm not being everything that I can be. So how do I even find the energy to do that? That's a very interesting thing to say that you're not being everything that you can be. I think you are right now. I think, you know, that goalpost might change as, as you get better, but it could change again if you were to get worse. Um, but, you know, I've had, I suppose I've had more time to come to terms with this, given the fact that I've had my disability since a few weeks after I was born. Um, but we are doing all that we can right now. And yes, we still have better days and worse days because, I mean, who gives 100% 100% of the time? I don't even know able-bodied neurotypical people who could pull that off. <laughs> right. But uh, just for a bit of perspective, try to keep that in mind when you're having those moments where you're not feeling like you're doing well enough or that you're good enough, because I struggle with that too. Um, you know, for Felix, um, he also requires a lot of patience. Like your son, he is very social and he is extremely vocal. Um, and so he wants to talk about everything and anything all the time. And he just is a little ball of energy. Like I swear, he took, he took it all from me. <laughs> just from sunup to sundown, he doesn't stop physically, verbally, anything. So yeah, it requires a tremendous amount of, of patience and attention, but I'm also supposed to be taking care of myself Mm -hmm. So that I can at least maintain what I have. And I realized that as Felix has required more from me and, you know, as I continue to try to be there for my other two kids as well, that I've been guilty of neglecting myself and my needs. And uh, in the long term, I'm not only shortchanging myself, but I'm shortchanging my kids because it's so hard to find that balance. So I struggle with that too, but I try to remember that I'm doing the best I can with whatever abilities I have for today. Yeah. Yeah, and on that note of advocating for oneself and one's child, that was a, a difficult balance for me to strike too when I got sick. There was like a two-year period where I, I did the math once and I was averaging three doctor's visits a week Wow. on already low energy. Yep. Oh, you know, I was doing so much trying to figure out what was wrong with me because I had a major asthma relapse at the same time as I got a condition that's diagnosed by exclusion, meaning you need to exclude every other possible condition that could cause these symptoms in order to diagnose chronic fatigue syndrome. So I was getting tests and referrals and specialists and reading and researching at home and trying new medicines and having bad reactions and trying other medicines all at the same time, I'm trying to advocate for Henry. And so I adopted him and he, so I didn't raise him from an infant. So he came up to Madison to live with me with his dad and his sister when they were eight. 
And it was the first time that they had been in like a big city where there were potentially support systems for him. So I'm taking him to appointments and he's getting evaluated and re-diagnosed. And we're trying to find different supports for him, but we're getting like, oh, this one's going to be $500 a week for an hour long visit sort of things. Or, oh, he's too old for this program and he's too young for this one. Yep. I'm getting that too. It's hard. There's such an age range that it's so difficult. So like older teenagers who are trying to move out on their own, there are a lot of support systems. And then younger children who are just getting diagnosed, there's a lot of supports. But the in-betweens, which he's been the whole time he's been with me, there's just not a lot. And there isn't for adults either. So like they have this limited window of time. And it's the same for people with CP. You get everything provided your parents can, you know, somehow afford it thrown at you but as soon as you hit 17 see you later Mm. wow it's it's an impossible situation to be in because there's nobody to help and there's no manual you know (laughs) right so you're just kind of on your own like well how do I know what's best you know do I tell him try harder (laughs) do I put stricter rules or do I just say this is how he is and let him do anything he wants there's got to be some balance, right? But who's going to help me find that balance? Well, it's just me and his dad. You know, we tried and tried to advocate for more support for him. And he does have, you know, he has like a half an hour speech therapy a couple times a week at school and some motor skills assistance. But, you know, mostly it's just on us and there's not much else we can do. Yeah. It's a harsh reality. Um, You know, Being disabled is very expensive in terms of one's time, money, and mental health. Yeah. Raising someone who is disabled is just as bad from an expense point of view. So, um, you know, I feel like I'm constantly running on empty, you know. So sometimes, you know, I I look at, I, I, I have this struggle, like I'm not doing enough, but then other times I look at my life and I'm like, how, how am I doing this? How long can I keep this up? And, you know, for the people who are listening to this, that think, well, this only serves to prove that people with disabilities shouldn't have children. Let's just take a second to highlight the fact that this can happen to anyone at any time. Any able-bodied neurotypical person can have something happen to them that makes them no longer a neurotypical, no longer able-bodied. And, you know, that can happen as a natural occurrence as one ages, but it could also happen due to accident or illness. Yeah, just like it did with me. Yeah. So, you know, you might not be disabled when you have your kids, but you you could become disabled while they're, you're still raising them. And you're never going to know, (laughs) at least with the technology that we currently have, whether or not your children are going to be disabled or not themselves. And again, it can happen to them because of accident or illness as well. Mm -hmm. It's non-discriminatory in terms of age or situation. Sometimes it's just luck. Mm -hmm. All I will add to that is just as a mom, to moms and Misty, I know I just met you today, but you guys are nailing it. Parent to parent, mom to mom. I support you both. 
Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Chad. So we will go ahead and move on to, we'll try and squeeze in this third topic. And um, it's something that I know Laura and I have kind of briefly talked about little bits here and there, but it's the benefits that disabled people receive and the income gaps and the marriage inequality when it comes to said benefits. So, uh, Laura, why don't you go ahead and start us off again with this on this topic? So, yeah, I mean, we already mentioned some of the issues that come up with benefits and benefits don't just mean financial uh, compensation. Or, or like assistance, you know, we're also talking about support programs and medical care and just transportation, the general things that, that people often take for granted in order to support their health and their daily life. Part of it is they're, they're uh, available by age, you know, as we mentioned, but it, it becomes a, an even more just messed up minefield of a situation as an adult, because um, let's let's compare, I guess, a child support situation to a disability benefits situation. So with child support, you know, um, the amount that one parent has to pay uh, another for the purposes of supporting their child or children has to do with, you know, um, how many children, how much both parents make, how much time is spent. But that parent can then go on and remarry. And they, as a couple, will have the spouse's income at their relatively full disposal because it is not factored into how much goes to the children. That is not the case for disabled people. If if you at all need uh, government benefits uh, in order to get the access to health care and other things that you need. Everything counts against it. All the assets that you have. So if you have a car or a house, how much you can or cannot work? How, many, how much savings are in your bank account? Guess what? As strict as that is, if you get married, your spouse's income counts against that too. Your spouse's assets count against that too. Your spouse's savings count against that too. And you lose your benefits. And we have already touched on the subject of uh, how expensive it is to be a disabled person, mm-hmm. which is just wrong. How are you supposed to meet those expenses when your ability to earn, your ability to save, and your ability to get support is severely restricted. Like as much as we talk about how much progress there has been in disability rights and in terms of things like Disability Awareness Month, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, the ADA, in terms of all of those advancements, disability discrimination, ableism is alive and well, and it is systematic because it is still very much encoded within our laws. And it's it reinforces the general mentality that we are not fully human beings. We are subhuman to some degree because we do not deserve the same access rights and and social abilities that our able-bodied neurotypical peers freely get to have and take for granted if they so choose. Misty. So in my situation, I got lucky 
and I recognize all the various ways that I got really, really lucky. So the first is that uh, I was able to get state insurance through the changes that Obama made just in time to be very sick. Literally two months before I came down with the virus that tanked my health forever, <laughs> um, I finally got insurance for the first time in my adult life. And I don't know what I would have done otherwise. And then as far as like the losing benefits because you get married, I I may be wrong on this, uh, but I looked it up and it seems like that is true for SSI, but with SSDI, that is not the case. And assuming that that's true, what I read recently, because um, I do need to still report that I've been married, so I'm going to find out. Um, but assuming that that's true, then I got lucky that I was able to work enough and pay into Social Security enough that I qualified for SSDI. Because that's certainly not true for every disabled person. So the difference mm -hmm. is that Social Security Disability Insurance, that's SSDI, mm -hmm. is because I have paid into Social Security. And so based on that amount that I've paid in um, and how many like years, I think it's years that you've worked continually, um, I'm able to draw payments from that. And then SSI is for low-income people. So then you get married and you're not as low income anymore and everything changes for you. I got lucky that at 29, I had worked just enough to qualify for SSDI and that's what I collect. So I'm pretty sure I'm not going to lose my benefits when I report that I got married, but I don't really know. And I also don't really know what's going to happen when I report that I'm feeling a bit better. And it's possible that even though, even though I still wouldn't be able to work. Maybe, maybe I could try five hours a week. It's possible that they may end my benefits because I'm feeling a bit better in some ways. You know, I'm only sleeping 10 hours a day instead of 12 to 14. I'm able to sit up in a chair for three or four hours straight. And that might be enough. And, and I'm always afraid that like, well, I hope to get better, certainly. But what if I only get better enough to lose my benefits and still not be able to support myself and my family? Right. And it's a constant fear that I'm going to have to live with because my illness varies so much and it's affected by so many different things. Yeah. Isn't it interesting that um, we live in a society that is medically and socially focused on curing or fixing a disabled person, but every system we have structured around that is actually designed to keep you as poor and as disabled as possible. It's, yeah. Or or you can't have it. It's 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 so awful. But then like like you said, I have been lucky too. I freely take credit for the work that I've put in to have the amount of functionality that I do from a physical standpoint in order to work. I was in therapy for my entire childhood. I've been through so many surgeries just to have this, but my um, incident Monday night on the ice reminded me of just how easily that can all be taken away. Mm -hmm. And I'm terrified of that because I have done so well in proving that I am able to work, that I will be put through the ringer if I ever need to apply for it. SSDI, SSI. And 
you know, I used to work in disability benefits. I know how long those cases take. I know what they put you through. And you only serve to get more scrutiny if you get better or you've shown that you're well enough. I am terrified of being in that situation. Um, and it has nothing to do with the prospect of being more disabled than I am now. It has everything to do with the barriers that will be against me being able to live. Like, I will literally be struggling for survival if I become more disabled than I am now and I I can't work. And I feel like I've already got a head start because I'm, I am more disabled now than I present. Like, I'm able to mitigate a lot. I'm able to hide a lot. And, you know, going back to the invisible disability for a second, there are a lot of aspects about my disability and the underlying brain damage that I have that are not apparent to someone I'm speaking with or someone that I'm even walking with, but they are there. And, you know, like I said before, how long can I keep doing this? I don't really know, but I don't relish the future and the prospects in it if I, if I need to rely on government assistance. It's just, it's so discriminatory. It's so difficult. And they always say it's because, you know, we don't want people pretending to be disabled uh, riding that gravy train. What gravy train? <laughs> Where is this? <laughs> no one would want this, especially like you were talking about the process. And oh my gosh, the process. Just, okay. So we talked about how like, I'm sick. I'm seeing the doctor three times a week. I'm managing, uh, I think the count was up to 38 doctors I have now. Wow. wow. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to get some support for my son. I'm trying to be a good mom and a wife. And now I've got to fill out all this paperwork and go to uh, court hearings and stuff to try to get SSCI or SSI. It's the same process. And then I'm denied. And I'm basically told, yeah, you can't work at all. Good luck with life. And so I reapply and I'm told more people get accepted on the second round and I'm denied again. And so then the third round is is like in front of a judge and um, a little bit more complicated. And that's where even more people get accepted. So this is like designed for people to be denied twice. And it's a long and difficult process it's almost like they don't want people to succeed in getting SSDI. So I hired a lawyer and, and she was amazing. And I did thank God get approved. Um, but you know, the whole thing was a year long stressful thing on someone who's just become disabled and their whole life has already changed. It's, it's a really messed up system. No one would want this. No one is choosing this for funsies. Right. No, no. If, if I could trade places with someone able-bodied, neurotypical, whatever, for a day, it would open up so many eyes. And mm -hmm. I, like I mentioned, have it relatively normal compared to a lot of people who have the same disabilities that I do. And I'm really lucky in terms of that. I can't imagine just how beaten down the majority of people in the disabled community must feel because of the various ways that we are kept down. Mm -hmm. 
And then add to that the fact that my particular illness is not even acknowledged by some in the medical community. So I'm being told, literally told by nurses. So what do you think it means that UW doesn't have a chronic fatigue specialist? I'm like, yeah, everyone knows what you're implying. Mm. That is so rude. Maybe they just need to get one then. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That was the answer. Actually, what I said was, please leave my room. But (laughs) that was nice of you. I would probably not have chosen those words. (laughs) Had she not left, she would have heard some stronger words. (laughs) But, you know, um, even in terms of, of like our demographic, we're better off than some of our peers because we're white. Like yeah. there's so much more, there's so many, there's, there's layers to the discrimination involved that, that touch on every other, you know, key minority demographic in, in society. And I just, I wonder like how much worse can that experience really get? Cause it was that bad for you, but how bad is it for, you know, a, a black woman with, with a disability or, you know, how, how much harder is it for them? Like, how can we we just let this happen? Like, why, why, why don't they care? Why are we always treated this way? Initially, we were institutionalized or like kept at home at all times and we weren't allowed to go out. Now we can go out if we have the ability to do so. But, you know, if we need assistance with that, not really. So it's just like, it's a prettier picture, but it's the same underneath. You know, uh, it's just, it's that's not entirely a thing of the past. There are people, I don't believe it's in America, but there are people in wealthy nations who have chronic fatigue syndrome and they are told it is all in your head. If you just try, you can walk again. And they are literally put into facilities against their will like psych facilities, not medical facilities mm-hmm. to help their physical disability. So, you know, in a lot of ways, the medical community is still like, we don't understand it. Therefore, we don't like it. Please go away. And, you know, it has improved. But that mentality of hide it away, pretend it doesn't exist is definitely still there. Yeah. And I don't know if that's because it it just makes people uncomfortable because it's different or because they know that it could happen to them and they don't want to face that reality. I just don't understand. Maybe it's just that it's not aesthetically pleasing. I don't know. Or a combination of a little bit of all of that. But we're people and we're not treated like people. And sometimes, like I said, it comes out in the subtlest of ways. Like, I'm going to design a building that has a mile-long entrance. Okay, I'm exaggerating, but you, you know, you know? Yeah. like, why would you do that? Like, I'm not going to cover this entrance because why? <laughs> right? People can walk through snow, right? Well, yeah. some people. <laughs> I mean, you live here, so you must be able to, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, and I think some of it, some of it is just ignorance. Maybe they just didn't think about it. But no, we don't get thought about. Right. If there is any group that somehow has a magical lack of visibility and therefore consideration in anything really, it's it's the disabled community. You know, we talk about visible and invisible disabilities, but I feel like we're all invisible when it's convenient for us to be. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I want to thank both of you again for joining me today. Um, this has been a very interesting and very like eye-opening for me conversation. And I, again, I appreciate you guys taking the time to share your stories. Um, as we close out the uh, conversation, is there, what's a, what's a good and maybe like non-intrusive way for non-disabled people to maybe try and be better allies and better advocates that maybe isn't just a tour guide singling someone out and therefore <laughs> excluding someone. And uh, is, is there, do you, do either of you have any kind of suggestions like that? Or is it just read a book, educate yourself, start there kind of thing? Well, you know, I think it's, going to vary from individual to individual um, because we all can feel differently about how we approach our disabilities and how we want to be approached about them. So I'm not going to speak too generally, but in my experience, um, you know, if you want to ask, hey, is it okay if we we talk about your disability? I'm, I'm really curious about it. I'd like to learn more or whatever. I'm fine with that. Others may not be, but at least if you ask that question, you should know. And from there, you know, you can have open uh, conversations. If if you're more of a self-learning type, you don't want to have that, that feeling of awkwardness or confrontation there or risk that, then there are tons of resources out there. Um, you know, there's TED Talks and other videos. If you prefer videos, there, there are um, disability advocates who are avid podcasters. Uh, on a wide variety of subjects. So, you know, if you're curious about any particular aspect of disabled life, you'll probably be able to find it. From, um, you know, written perspective, yes, if you really want to, you can go out and read the medical journals and and whatnot about our various conditions. Or, um, you know, there's, there's disability forums if you want to have conversations that way behind a keyboard kind of thing. Or there, but there are also uh, really good resources out there on subjects like disability etiquette, how how to properly uh, address someone with a disability, whether you're talking to them or whether you're talking about them. Um, you know, like a really good example that comes up a lot is is I see it all the time in writing. I hear it in interviews. It drives me nuts. <laughs> Suffering from a victim of we. Okay, we might have days where we feel like we're suffering. We might even have days where we victimize ourselves. You know, why me? All that, you know, anyone has that when they have a bad day, right? But generally speaking, we're not suffering, we're living. So we have a disability or however you want to phrase that, but it is not something to be pitied or patronized. If you can avoid pity and patronization, you're already on a good path. Yeah, I think, you know, you said a lot of the things that I was going to say, like just if there is a disabled person in your life, regardless of the disability, and you want to do better for them, or you're just curious even, ask if you can ask. I think that's the first step. You know, a friend of mine recently became disabled, and I I asked, can we talk about this? And she said, "Uh, thinking about it too much makes the pain worse. I said, okay, and we changed subjects. So like even me as a disabled person, I ask if I can ask because sometimes it's cool to talk about it and sometimes it's not. It may even depend on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but but then the more general advice I would give is I would say like find your assumptions because I didn't even realize until I became disabled myself 
that my assumption was a disabled person is a paraplegic in a wheelchair. If you said the word disability, that's what came to my mind. So what comes to your mind? What came to your mind when you saw the title of this podcast? Find those assumptions and recognize that they are not always true. And that's the first step really to becoming more curious and less, I don't know, having less assumptions and and then acting on things that aren't true. Yeah, and that's a good point. And I think one of the biggest assumptions that we could probably touch on right now is disability and disabled and any other variation on the word is not a dirty word. They're not dirty words. They are accurate descriptors of our situation uh, as individuals and within our society. The Mm -hmm. best way to bring about more conversations, more opportunities to be an ally is to not treat disability like it's something you can't talk about you can't say you shouldn't say I mean we're not swearing here we're not we're not using derogatory language it this is it's just a word and it's an important one you know give it the consideration and recognition that it's due yeah you know I fought for a year to get the title of disabled and have my condition recognized as valid so I'm gonna put on my business card as a title (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know it's just a part of my identity I am female I am white I am disabled I am mom I am wife yeah and you know some people whether they've been disabled their whole lives or whether it's new don't want disability to be recognized as part of their identity Mm, that's true That, that doesn't mean that it isn't but we have to meet people on their terms and, you know, I got to do the same as a disabled person as well. And, you know, I've I've stepped in, I've put my own foot in my mouth a few times. Like, so I'll be like, oh, I know someone with CP. And my first response is, oh, cool. And then I'm like, oh, wait, that came out wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, very good. And I, I can't stress this enough. Thank you, ladies, both for joining uh, joining in today and having this conversation. And I hope you don't mind that I didn't have a whole lot to interject with and, and throw in. I just enjoyed listening to both of you guys share your experiences and your stories. And I feel like I even listening now, I'm, I've taken taken away quite a bit from it and just how I, I love the um, acknowledge your assumptions. I love that. And I think yeah. that is a really good uh, kind of beginner in the beginning steps. So and again, thank you guys so much for joining me today. And I hope to have continue these conversations with you ladies down the road. Because uh, again, this is this is just the tip of a very, very big, complex iceberg. And mm-hmm. thank you guys so much for joining thank us you. today and everyone listening today. I would like to add a quick content warning for the following conversation. Since we are discussing outdated terminologies, the R word does come up, so please be aware while listening. Thank you. This month, we will be continuing our disability awareness conversations with Laura and Misty, and this time we will be focusing on language and terminology. We will be referencing Emily Ladau's book, Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be, how to be an Ally, available for, available for checkout at the Eager Free Public Library. And it's a really good book, and I highly recommend it. Uh, So there's the chapter that covers what to say with a table of say this, not that, 
Uh, we won't be covering all the terms she has listed, but just a few that uh, our guests have selected. Um, and before we get started, I will kind of paraphrase what Emily writes in her book, and that's basically, if you're unsure what a person prefers, ask them. Um, so today we will begin with Misty. Welcome back, Misty, and thank you for joining us today. Hi, glad to be here. Awesome. So like I said, not everything from this chart, but one of the first things that she has here is the say this, uh, disability slash disabled or a person with disability or a disabled person, but not this, differently abled, unless preferred, and handy capable. So we'll start with this set. What are your thoughts, Misty? So I guess my um, optimistic assumption is that these words, the differently abled and handy capable, were designed to be more like inclusive and maybe kind, but I'm not sure they ever actually functioned that way. Um, they were pretty quickly picked up in the media I remember one of the first times I heard handy capable was in the movie saved and it was used kind of like, um, I mean, the character used it sincerely, but the character wasn't like a, a caricature. So the perception was like, this is a silly thing to say, or this is like not something a normal person would say. And I think it's, it's just kind of trying to downplay an aspect that, is part of our lives and regardless of what step of acceptance we're on downplaying it is not helpful or appropriate laura what is what's your take on these words uh yeah i i totally agree with that um i personally hate them there might be some people who find them more appealing uh because of of their soft-heartedness i suppose but the thing is, I feel like these words were put in place to try and make, uh, you know, try and make it feel good. Except I don't know who it's trying to make feel good: the disabled person or the the person interacting with the disabled person. And so, most of the time, in the context that I have personally experienced these words, it has been the latter. It just it makes it easier for the non-disabled person to talk about, to swallow. And, uh, I don't know. Maybe that's a good thing if it brings them to the table. But it's it reminds me of the whole term inspiration porn. You know, like mm. we're our purpose is to make you feel better about your life, and that's that's how these words land for me. Um, obviously, context is important. I don't think everyone's ill-meaning or self-serving when they use them, but they are generally patronizing, and I feel we would be better off without them. Um, plus, they take the stance of making disability or disabled a dirty word, and it's not. It's right. just a word, and it's an accurate descriptor. And we don't mind it, so why should you? I was just going to ask that if you guys think that that there's a, a stigma, I guess, around the word disabled or disability where able-bodied people are just like, oh, I don't know. Can I say that? Can I say it? You know? Yes, there is. It's actually kind of funny when that happens. <laughs> Can mm -hmm. I say that word? Is that okay? It's not the R word. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, and you know, that's the appropriate question. If you're brand new to interacting with disabled people and you don't know what term to use, just ask. Yeah, no and problem. And I doubt with that. you will hear handy capable as the answer. <laughs> yeah. 
Another set of kind of not this has been on the list was special needs or special, what was the other, special ed, unless preferred. And I also just want to say that we're not here today saying like, absolutely say this and absolutely don't say that. We're just having a conversation around these terminologies and just getting some perspective uh, on them. So with that said, Misty, uh, any issues with special needs or special eds? Again, unless preferred. Um, I don't have issues with these words, but I know that they, like when I was in high school, they were, they were used as insulting. Um, it's like uh, a joke for people who weren't in special education, like, oh, you should be in special education. But my son is, and he just calls it sped. And I asked him if he's ever been picked on for it. And he's like, no, I'm just in special education. So it doesn't seem to be a big deal to him. So it doesn't bother me. And I hope that it remains that way so that we don't have to constantly change that term too. Fair enough. Laura? Um, you know, on face value, it's a little patronizing, similar to differently abled and handy capable. However, um, it does, the whole special needs thing does apply to special education. Like, that's the language that they use within the school system. And when I was growing up, it was definitely a, you know, a stigmatized thing. If you were in special education, you were treated horribly. And for a while, I was in the special education room because they, you know, when you first have a disabled student come in, um, they don't know where you fit in just yet. And the assumption is you start there until you prove otherwise. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I enjoyed being in the room because I got to goof around a lot more and I, I got to help other kids who genuinely needed help with their schoolwork, but I was bored. So, you know, growing up, I really, really, really hated the whole special education term and special needs, but I've, I've come around as a parent of a disabled child to accept it for the good that it does. And I like the the abbreviation SPED. I think that's mm -hmm. cool. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm, I'm going to give this one a pass. <laughs> right on. Yeah, I think I had read something somewhere that like with special needs, you know, it's it, it's been a while and I'm this may end up getting cut if I can't phrase it <laughs> the way it was the way I had read it. But just that like. You know, disabled people, their needs are the same as anybody else's, any able-bodied person. And to make accessibility special kind of when everyone else can have, you know, has access to these things. I think that was kind of, that was more or less what I was kind of taken away from, I don't know, that tweet or random comment I had read somewhere, I think. And yeah. I just, it just kind of made me wonder. And I'm like, because I'd never really thought of it that way either so that's why and i thought it was interesting that it was also included on this list as well so um yeah yeah like i said it's one of those gray area terms like it has been helpful within the education system but generally speaking when i see it i still <laughs> i still think of ralph wiggum saying i'm special you know <laughs> so it's like oh no, we don't want that. But <laughs> I think when used in the right environment, it is helpful 
so we shouldn't be so quick to shun it like some of the other words you might see on this list. All right, fair enough. All right, the next set um, is the, not say, high functioning and low functioning. Um, the chart indicates you should say person who is able to, person who is unable to, or even a person with high support needs. Thoughts on, on that, Misty? Um, I was surprised to see this one on the list and I'm actually going to pass to Laura to see what she has to say about it. Cause I'm curious why that might be offensive. I was not surprised to see this on the list. High functioning, low functioning from a medical standpoint, it is very clear uh, that they're categorization terms and that might help in terms of diagnosis and determining further needs in, in, as far as medical assistance um, and by extension, you know, educational assistance, things like that. But to just flippantly use those in other spheres, and I can see where this is especially harmful in the employment spec um, uh, sector, for example. Uh, so high functioning implies that there's not enough wrong with you. <laughs> and not saying again that disability is wrong because it isn't, it's just a fact of life. But that is how it is viewed from a uh, able-bodied neurotypical perspective, you're high functioning. So you're not that disabled. So you don't need help ever. And since, and, and since you don't need help ever, or at least under normal circumstances and normal in quotes, um, <laughs> uh, then you shouldn't need help if something changes, or if you have like a bad day with your disabilities or your health conditions. And the thing with that is like from a cerebral palsy perspective, my cerebral palsy is considered mild and therefore I am considered high functioning. But that is not to say that I don't need help. That is not to say that I don't need accommodations. And it's not even to say that that's accurate. It just means that I can, I can mask and I can mitigate a lot of the things that I struggle with on a daily basis very well. So, you know, high functioning can often mean that you just don't have the support when you need it because of how you present. It might not even be accurate in terms of what actually is going on. Conversely, on the low functioning side, well, you're verging on the R word. <laughs> you are insinuating that these people, whether it's intellectual, developmental, physical, whatever, aren't capable of anything. They're not functional people. So there's a lot of implication here when this is thrown out, again, just in regular conversation or in the employment sector specifically, because um, social security benefits, for example, define a person as disabled or not based upon employability and ability to work. According to social security, I'm high functioning. I am not disabled enough for them anyway. So yeah, there's a lot of implications here. This outside of the medical perspective, these terms are very capable of causing damage and they often do. Um, couple questions. So with the uh, high functioning aspect, you said that it, it can lead to like not having the support that you need. 
do you think that that's because you're capable of masking symptoms and and like doing things for yourself most of the time or do you think that's actually a result of the language um it's both i mean the language has the implication of what one is observing so people have expectations attached to these words and yes it is harder for me to get support when i need it because i normally don't need it to the extent that some of my peers do but there are days where i definitely need it <laughs> Mm-hmm. And but it's also an internal struggle. Like it's not just externally. I can't get the support. I can't convince you that I'm disabled enough in this moment that I need help. It's I have to struggle now with the fact that I have viewed myself as high functioning because I have been labeled with that by so many people in so many different areas of my life for so long that when I deviate from that, from my own personal identification and expectations. I struggle with it. Um, so not saying it's harder for me to ask because I've, I've gained some humbleness over the years, I suppose. But I struggle with the perception change that my asking causes. You know, okay. Are they now doubting my ability to do my job on a daily basis? Are they now doubting my ability to... to uh, just do random stuff with friend groups because I couldn't do this one thing. Yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Um, maybe not in a physical standpoint, but like emotionally, people don't want to break down emotionally because then like, well, they're going to think that I'm always just a mess and I'm always needing so much help. So yeah, I totally get that. Um, but then what what do you prefer? I prefer to just not talk about how well, I function. I don't. I don't think it's relevant. Um, because you know okay, what? So fine. Sorry. If you wanted to, if you wanted to nitpick, like, okay, you could argue that I'm high functioning because I can walk, but then you could say I'm low functioning because in winter I can't walk on the snow or the ice. So, yeah. you know, um, like I don't want to label my abilities when I have them and when I don't and all that stuff because. I don't know. For me, that kind of feels like I'm I'm trapping myself almost. Like I can never go outside of these boundaries that have put been put in place by labeling and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if I do, what do I have? Do I have an identity crisis? Do my friends have an identity crisis about me? Like how? How? You know, what's the implication here? Like you know, um, I think just I think we should just move away from these labels, generally speaking, unless they are medically or like educationally appropriate in terms of designing programming for a disabled person. Um, Outside of that, um, I don't want to talk about how high or low functioning I am on a given day, just like nobody else would. Like, say, you know, Jen was having a really bad day and she wasn't feeling well. Does that make her low functioning that day? Uh, you know, yeah, I would say like, yes. Do, do we do that for everyone then? Or do we do that for no one? I, I get that we don't use the same terms, but I, you know, I feel like if Jen had a cold, she might say like, oh, I'm just really wiped out today and I'm sick. And those two terms are boxes that she puts herself in for just a day. Mm-hmm. or a few to say, this is my physical status. 
And I'm not, I'm not sure. Like I get your like personal feeling of like my internal dialogue is a problem, but like, but I, I do think boxes and categories are, are useful um, in conversation. Like, let's say that Jen was speaking with, I don't know, a potential fourth for this podcast. And so she had your permission to, to speak a little bit about disability. If she told this person like, oh, well, so there's Laura and she has CP and she's high functioning. Would you find that offensive or like, would that be a problem as a descriptor of you? Yeah, it's a problem. Okay. I don't think now in this context, do I think it was meant to be malicious in any way, shape or form? No. Yeah. Intention matters. But what qualifications does Jen have to determine whether I'm high functioning or not? And what does she mean when she communicates that? Like, why, why is that important? Again, it's not just the high and low categories here that are the problem. It is the word functioning. Uh, I see. It, it implies, it implies a baseline. It implies that this is the norm for this person. Like if we go back to the example of Jen having a cold and being sick and, you know, feeling wiped out that day, that's temporarily low functioning. Sure. But we don't label it as low functioning because it sounds more permanent, but also again, functioning implies that there is value here, especially with the high and low labels attached to them, that there is value here on what a person is capable of, what a person can do and is doing in a moment. And that's what makes them worthwhile as a person. And I, I just, I don't think that we're ever going to be able to properly advocate for disabled inclusion the way that we want it to be if we continue to label ourselves this way, because we're inviting that discrimination. Okay. I can understand that. Um, So then like my biggest question, once I saw those on the list was like, okay, if these are, if these terms are a problem, I don't understand why, but if they're a problem, then what's the alternative? Um, So if we look at the, the other end of the person of the spectrum, let's say you have a parent who has a child who has been diagnosed with uh, like low functioning autism and they want to share their experience in like, you know, two or three minutes with someone to just say like, this is a big part of my life. This is what I go through. Should they not use the term low functioning? Like, do they, what do they say? Like nonverbal can't walk file or like, do they have to describe all the symptoms? (laughs) No, I wouldn't advocate for that too, unless you wanted to. But again, if a person is describing themselves, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother kettle of fish because we have control over what we intend to communicate with these terms. But when someone else is communicating on our behalf or we're being talked about in this manner, in a non-medical way, then that's where the damage can be done because then we're taking the person who's speaking, it's their perception of what high functioning and low functioning means, not just for that person, but maybe in general as well, where it can cause problems. And it also brings to question what that person places value on within those things. Like, is it really just meant as a descriptor? Like, hey, uh, you know, just be be mindful, be aware, be respectful of the fact that this person is this way. Or is it like, I think 
I think Laura's cool because she's high functioning and she can do all these cool things. You know, you know what I mean? We don't know. And that's where potential harm can happen because the message that was intended might not be the message that's getting across. Mm -hmm. As far as what you say, what an alternative is, I think where reasonable these, these terms of person who is able to do this, person who is unable to do that works. But if you're going to get into the, you're right, it gets a little exhausting Mm-hmm. labeling different capabilities so there's there's two caveats here like say it's situational for example like uh a, a group of people want to get together and they're like hey you think we should invite laura to go rollerblading with us well no <laughs> i'm unable to rollerblade but um so that situationally that works but generally speaking i don't see why outside of contextual questions we need to talk about what we're able to do and what we're not um i think there is need though uh like friends of disabled people parents siblings so you know you and i have experience of someone with autism who Mm -hmm. is high functioning low end of the spectrum it's very different from the experience of a parent with someone on the autism spectrum higher up or lower functioning, and without using those words, higher spectrum or lower functioning, how can they quickly and easily convey, like, this is my experience, this is my son's disability? Uh, Autism, I guess, is my specific uh, issue I have with this, because a lot of illnesses can be easily boxed or imagined or categorized, but autism is such a huge spectrum. If you're not referring to that spectrum or levels of functionality how else do you define it well i'm I'm gonna ask you a follow-up question i suppose okay Uh, why do you need to define it um well i know i know a father of a autistic child and he's a single father and it's just like 90 percent of his life is this child Mm -hmm. you know it with a severely autistic child who needs 100 percent attention all the time. It's just such a different experience from us. Just saying, I have a child with autism doesn't quite say it. Doesn't quite say what though? It it doesn't say, you know, like if you say, oh, I have a child who's in a university that kind of, it defines what your life is like a little bit of what their life is like, you know, you're putting it in boxes. Sure. You don't have the whole story, but it's a concise way of describing someone's situation. Yeah, but it's also a concise way of oversimplifying that situation and it's it's putting it's putting I don't know how I want to word this. It's it's putting too much emphasis on someone's disability as a part of their identity without their consent or their presence. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't like I am firmly in the camp of my disability is part of my identity. Don't pretend you don't see it. Like, come on, we all see it. I've seen myself (laughs) on camera. (laughs) Um, But I want to have a say in when that matters, in how much that matters, in why that matters. And, you know, I get that when you're describing your 
different parental situations to each other, you know, as like I'm I'm bonding over the fact that we're both parents of of people with disabilities or we're we're both parents and we have people with disabilities in our lives. However that perspective is. That's I totally get where you're where you're coming from with that that bonding experience. But why does it have to be I need to say this in a single sentence. And even then, even then their idea of high functioning and your idea of high functioning are probably not the same because do you get when you get your diagnosis of autism do you get like a little visual slider of where you are on the scale do you get a then do you get a like a, a, a like a, a little card of information like because you're on this part of the scale you have this 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 and this but you can do this 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 and this it's not that simple i mean even with my son okay uh sure if we want to use these terms as an example generally speaking you might consider him high functioning just looking at him why because he can run around he can talk he can spend time in the normal classroom he learns but I would not label him as such at all. And this week was an excellent example of that. He could not in the slightest handle his emotions this week. I've got no idea as to why, but you know, um, it can be rough. Like he'd be considered high functioning. Sure. Okay. But how high functioning is it on a social scale um, from a social life capacity here? if I get punched by my son, because it happened twice this week, like that's a big deal. Yeah. It's a big problem. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and it's one that we're working through. We've, we've got psychiatrists and psychologists involved. We got behavioral plans involved. We're, you know, adjusting medication. We're working with the school, you know, everything to try and give him the best possible uh, boundaries and situations and circumstances to work in, but he still has those days where, you know, he's emotionally overwhelmed and is somewhat dangerous because of that. Mm -hmm. So I can't, I can't just go and label him high functioning just because a medical test says he is. I don't think it's that simple and I would never describe him that way. Okay. Um, I wouldn't even, I, I, I only described myself this way for the sake of illustrating these terms. I wouldn't even describe myself that way. I especially hate it on the terms of physical disability, because like you said, saying, saying you have a a child with autism or an autistic child, uh, it doesn't quite convey everything. Neither does saying I have cerebral palsy or I have a child with cerebral palsy, because I can guarantee you the majority of people who, hear that will immediately visualize one of two things a person in a wheelchair or a person walking with crutches i fit neither of those demographics right so it's never you're never going to completely convey the the nuances of a particular individual's disability especially with a spectrum term or an umbrella term because cerebral palsy is one as well. Yeah. So, um, but you're kind of making my point, you know, I said that like just saying a child with autism doesn't say it. Just saying someone with CP doesn't say it. But if I said 
someone with CP who is high functioning. How, what that, does that mean? It, it gives a better image, I would say. Um, I mean, it's, it's not perfect. It's not a, right. it's not, it's not all the details. It's never going to be, but it's a term that, that kind of trims down the mental image and the options. Um, well, it does, but I, I, you know, first there's the ambiguity, like I said, what does that really mean? But mm-hmm. more importantly, again, it emphasizes a value of one over the other. And that's, that's not fair to people who wouldn't be considered high or low. It's not even fair to the people, you know, it's not fair to the people who would be considered high functioning either. Maybe you're placing unrealistic expectations on them. Mm-hmm. I, I just think while these terms will help you quickly communicate, perhaps an adjusted perspective, they're not good enough to, to use without harm. And it's not that you intend harm at all. I know that you don't. Mm-hmm. But say if I was in HR and I had, you know, two applicants who had um, autism, let's say. Why do I bring autism up? It's Autism Awareness Month. But also there is actually a tech employer now who's developing a hiring program specifically for autistic individuals, mm-hmm. which I think is awesome. Because um, some of some of the things that I've seen with working with people in tech who also identify as autistic people, um, their pattern recognition skills and stuff, they're just phenomenal at that. It, it's very, it, it's it's amazing to see they can go through like security alerts and find the problem they're so much faster than than the average person. It's awesome. I love it. Um, and, you know, uh, one particular individual was really proud of themselves for that fact, too. You know, like this was a positive aspect of their identity. It was it was just really amazing to see. So I'm just absolutely blown away that, you know, an entire company recognized this as a potential uh, strength for them and are acting accordingly on it. But then, OK, say you're an HR director and you get one that's high functioning and one that's low functioning. Again, what does that mean? But also, if I'm being ableist, I'm going to go, ooh, high-functioning, yeah. What is that? I don't want to I mean, do like, that. Okay, so I'm starting to see your point because that's not the sort of thing I would ever put on a resume. No. Like, that's not an identifier that I would but want. that's what you're doing right. verbally when you identify them that way. Right. Um. So, like... Most of these terms that we're talking about, it's like, if you're not sure, ask, or if you're offended, don't use that term, even if you don't understand why. I think my big issue with this one is that some of the people being referred to as low functioning don't have that option. They can't understand or can't communicate their preferences on that term. And so it's mostly being used by their caregivers. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm like, well, if it's like, if it's a caregiver term to, just define the person that they're caring for and like how their illness may be different from the preconception when you hear the term of their illness, is that bad or wrong? So I think, I think the conclusion is most of the time. Yes. That's what it seems like. Um, Yeah. And maybe sometimes that's just the, you know, quick and dirty way to say it. If you don't have time to explain. 
Yeah, I would say handle with extreme caution <laughs> and try not to use these unless you absolutely have to. And then from a medical perspective, there are times where yeah. these are used and medically speaking, that's okay. But I mean, yeah. if we're talking medical terms, like they used to have labels for different, different IQ ranges, mm-hmm. you know, um, and we don't use those labels anymore. So I think this is one of those things that's just going to age itself out. And I don't know what it's going to look like going forward, but I think there are better ways to address this. And, you know, as an example, like, again, on the autism front, someone who's considered low functioning may just not do well in social situations at all. Like they can't handle it. But if you get them, like if you're an employer, you get them working in an environment that's comfortable for them and they're really, really good at what they do, then, um, why wouldn't you want them on your team? You would just handle them differently. Yeah. Very good. Wow. Very, very interesting. That was kind of, I I enjoyed watching the back and forth and listening to that because I think, again, that's just kind of points to the ever-changing landscape of the language and also, again, what the preferences are. You know, some folks have a bit more issue with some of these terms than other folks. And I just, I just, I think it's interesting. And I feel like I've learned a lot right now, just with the high functioning versus low functioning. So, because mm-hmm. I'd kind of heard little bits of the arguments on either side, but this was very, very helpful for me. So thank you, ladies. Uh, we'll go ahead. And um, I know Misty had a, uh, a story that she wanted to share regarding one of the terms on this list uh, being that the term on the list is mentally retarded. I'm not comfortable with that word. And, but I thought I'd be a big girl and say it. Um, and then I figured we can maybe kind of wrap it up with uh, what you got, what your lady's thoughts are on reclaiming some words, maybe not all the words on this list or any of the words we talked about today, but you know, the the power that's maybe behind that. So, um, Missy, if you would like to go ahead and share your, your story, your anecdote or what you Right. Share? So when I was younger, I think I must have been in middle school. Um, my, my mom, who's been a nurse since before I was born, uh, told me that when she started working, the, the term was the R word, retarded. And Really, it's it was just a medical term, and it's even still a musical term. It just means slow. It means they're not hitting their normal milestone. She's a pediatric nurse. If if a baby doesn't make eye contact, roll over, walk, babble, do any of those baby milestones in the right timing, they were labeled retarded, slower. And then she said, well, then that term started to become an insult. And so then the next term was... Uh, uh, yeah, I think slow was the next one that they used. And that was just like really brief in the medical community because it became an insult very quickly. Um, and then there was a uh, mentally handicapped and then that too went out of phase. And then she was like, and now the term is delayed, which is just a word that means exactly the same thing, but they haven't used it as an insult yet. So don't tell anyone or they'll start using it as an insult. so I mean just in my lifetime the term has changed four times and the only reason behind the medical term changing is because 
the media and just people in general use these medical terms to be an insult or a joke. And so the medical community can no longer use them. When we took my son to the Wiseman Center to be diagnosed with autism, they have like all of their um, newspapers and articles and stuff hanging up on the wall. And it used to be called the Wiseman Center for Retarded Children. And so all these newspapers are using that term. And like, that was just the medical term of the day, but now it sounds so bad. Like who would bring their kids to the, the Wiseman Center for Retarded Children? That's terrible. But I think the moral of that story is one, don't use medical terms as an insult. I just, it just makes the language constantly change. And if you're confused at how complicated all the, the terminology is around this, that's a big factor in why. Don't use these terms as insults or jokes. Um, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> you want to comment having, on that? And then I have another I'm story. Having, I'm having trouble getting over the Wiseman Center for Retarded Children. Yep. Like, wow. I'm just imagining that in big letters on the outside of a building, you know? It and, was there. <laughs> and I just, like, you never, ever see that now. Like, no. I, rem- like I, I remember growing up and, and retard was the insult of choice. Like, mm-hmm. instead of calling someone stupid or something they did stupid, like, oh, my God, that's retarded. And mm-hmm. and you just go on with your day. And, like, I'm disabled and I was saying it flippantly. Like, kids don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, we just, from a kid perspective, we just thought it meant stupid. And kind of the same thing, you know, like, people interchange the words now. Like, on the subject of stupid from a medical perspective, like, again, I mentioned the IQ ranges not too long ago. Uh, based on whatever range you were at, like you could be medically labeled a moron, or if you your IQ was significantly low, an idiot. And those were medical terms too, but they're quite obviously insults. And interestingly, they don't get treated like like retard does now. Um, like, why is an idiot the I word? Like, it's yeah. a really like if you look at the IQ ranges, it's a really mean thing to call someone. Like, morons mm. kind of like. Yeah, but idiots, idiots brutal. Mm. And, you know, I don't even think we use it with the significance that it once had um, in terms of that. So it's interesting. You're right. Every time a medical term comes out to uh, describe a less than ideal condition, whether it's temporary or not, it eventually becomes an insult. And I think you could argue that for like all the words on this list. Yeah. 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 And that's, and that's a problem. Um, we had an issue in our house with the word stupid because my son has autism, but he is not uh, intellectually delayed or disabled at all. Um, but when you have someone who has autism and is socially awkward, kids, people in general, but especially kids, might assume that he has an intellectual disability. So the word stupid can bear a lot of weight. And uh, his twin sister had never considered that. And she was throwing that word around the house and at him. Like he was looking for his shoes. What are you, stupid? And like, (laughs) And so we we didn't want to embarrass her. She's very sensitive. So we waited until they got home and Kathy, you know, that word is a little more meaningful than I think you mean. We know you don't think your brother is stupid. 
don't call him that. Or he might think that because he trusts you a lot. And, and so it's, you know, it's just one of those things that it's like, you have to be really careful with your words because it can affect how people think about themselves. Yeah, you're right. I think the word stupid can generally do more harm than a swear word can yeah. when, used, when used accordingly. Um, however, it is still a very apt way to describe something that is done that shouldn't have been done. That's like, true. <laughs> I have caught myself saying to my kids, you know, that was a really stupid thing to do, but right. we're going to we're we're going to learn from this. Yeah, know? and that's different from saying are you stupid or you are stupid. I yes. think uh, that word in particular should not be applied to a person. It can be applied to an act. Yeah, sure. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned mentally handicapped. Did um, I say that? You know, yeah. I, you, you through the progression of uh, retard oh. to slow to that's funny because handicapped to delayed. I'm trying to change my my mental wording to uh, like mentally disabled, not handicapped, because apparently people have some issues with that word. But that's another uh, one I don't understand. So <laughs> inform me. <laughs> well, I think some of it's a miss understanding of the origin of it like um people assume that it came from the phrase cap in hand like you have to beg for things and that's not actually correct it came from the term hand and cap which was the name of a game that used to be played where everyone had an equal chance of winning and then that got applied to sports like horse racing you would handicap the faster horses by adding weight to them um to make it a fair race. Uh, so, you know, all in all, it was meant to be a fairness thing, but then it started being used, I think around like the early 1900s as um, a term specifically for disabled people and always in a competitive sense. So I've read the phrases like handicapped in the struggle of existence. Like how much is wrong with that? Huh. right um and it's it almost means the opposite of fair right you know like oh does that mean we're we're weighing down the able-bodied and the neurotypical with with more responsibilities and and expectations so that it's fair for us no it's the other way around so i, I still don't quite understand how it got flipped like that but because it got flipped like that and because it's used competitively it's it's become outdated and and a little derogatory um but then you still see the word handicap when you're playing golf so it's like you still see it uh, as reference to parking and i seem to accept it in terms of parking and nowhere else it's one of those ones where i don't know how to treat this one i i don't know like yeah with handicap parking it fits because it's making the parking more fair for us Uh uh-huh exactly and and like other people can't use those spots so they're having weight added yeah, <laughs> they're so having walk being, added when it's being used in the way that it's actually meant in other contexts like golf you know um then i don't have a problem with it but when people use it any other way yeah it it, it can be a problem because i again you, you talked about terms being an insult well yeah. i've i've seen this used as an insult hmm. so yeah, see, that's one, like for me, mentally, handicapped and disabled are right on par in my head. 
that they're they mean the same thing. They're equally inoffensive. Um, huh. So that, that's why I was surprised to see that that's not the case for some people. See, they don't mean the same thing to me, but that's also because I actually like know what the word was supposed to be used for back in the day kind of thing and how it is still used for it in other contexts. Again, golf comes to mind because my husband plays golf and it's literally on the card, handicap. You put your stroke number in there, right? So but you add so, points when you handicap in golf because you're trying to get a low score. Is that how that works? So, um, yeah, the better the better player in the group adds strokes to their start starting point. So they start off in a more negative position because they'll probably make it up and beyond. I think so I it gives those how this evolves is 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 giving the worst player in the group a better chance. Yeah, so the the better player is handicapped. Therefore things are made harder for them. So yeah. I am handicapped. <laughs> things are harder for me. Things I, have been made harder for me. <laughs> Why? Because if I wasn't disabled, I'd be some like mega evil genius billionaire person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, know, you had to be, be nerfed. nerfed. You were overpowered. Already. I don't know. <laughs> Bond villain. <laughs> yeah, my husband has joked that I was too smart, so I had to be physically nerfed down. <laughs> I yeah, I've heard that joke. <laughs> yeah, that leads right into reclaiming things, right? Like, yeah, yeah, sure does. Yeah, yeah. it's like we planned this. <laughs> um, okay, so there are words on this list for physically disabled, specifically. It's my favorite section because I'm physically <laughs> disabled, but also because every single one of those words, except for invalid, I've used <laughs> to describe myself. Mm-hmm. I have also used them to educate people on when you should use them and when you shouldn't. Can you read the list? Um, so we have uh, cripple, gimp, invalid, and spaz. And there are actually others that aren't on there, but this this is fine. Um <laughs> I call myself a cripple when I refer to myself. Like, and again, I'm not being, I know. (laughs) I'm not being, (laughs) I'm not being mean to myself. It's just, you were talking earlier about a succinct way to describe someone's situation. That's the word that does it for me. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Can't do that. I'm crippled. (laughs) See, language is so funny because this is also a medical term that turned to an insult, but now it's funny. Now it's not so Slow insulting. Down, I'm crippled. I need to walk. <laughs> you want to be treated fairly. Come on. No. <laughs> you can still hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. So cripple for me is a term of empowerment. And, you know, like I've used it in social contexts to describe myself and also avoid more awkward, long-winded conversations. Like I am not embarrassed to admit that when I was single, I used dating apps. Um, that's actually how I met my husband. So but I met my husband. My bio oh. literally said, I'm crippled. Deal with it. <laughs> you know Mine what? Said, it, fil- it filtered out a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it, it just it just works for me. And I'm glad that I can use that word. Does that mean that I want everyone to go throwing it around? No, because I think intent matters. And, you know, this mm-hmm. is about taking ownership of, of the things that have been used to uh, hold us down and, and you know, 
treat us poorly. Um, and I love that I am a part of, of taking that power out of that word. I wish I could do it words, but I don't think I have the ability to make the R word okay. <laughs> no, that one's long gone. I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to try. So we're not like, there's some that are just not touchable anymore and we need to accept mm-hmm. that. But like, I have no issue with the word cripple. And, you know, conversely, like, I can see why people would because, you know, like, oh, you're being mean to yourself because they still see it as an insult. But I'm not mm-hmm. insulting myself. Uh, this is a part of my identity and this is how I choose to identify it. Um, and that that's, that's my prerogative. That doesn't mean that you need to be comfortable with saying the word cripple or you need to be comfortable with describing yourself with any of these words. This is, this is just how I feel about it. And I feel better. I feel more relaxed when I can call myself a cripple and y'all can laugh about it, honestly. <laughs> um, as far as spaz goes on this list, I've seen people use that to describe themselves when they're like having an off day and they're just not doing anything right. You can see why that's a problem. But then I, I had a real like eye-opening experience when I went over to Denmark because um, that was the pre- preferred term for the physically disabled when describing themselves instead of cripple. I, they just described themselves as spaz. and. I, I was like, wow, after, you know, at first I, you know, I was taken aback, but then I'm like, wow, this is awesome. I can call myself <laughs> fast. <laughs> and I, I really started going with it, you know, but I still, I don't, I don't know. I cripple rolls off the tongue better for me. So I'm just going to stick with that. Um, yeah. I, I have like, actual muscle spasms. And so on days when they're really bad, I call myself a spaz. I do too. And that seems like a very apt reason to use that word, but I still just stick with cripple i don't know like maybe maybe i I should work spaz in a little more (laughs) but from from the gimp side of things i mean i've had cultural confusion over that word because of movies that feature gimps that have nothing to do with this sphere Mm -hmm. but you know the actual meaning of the word if you look it up it refers to specifically um your gait Mm -hmm. so if you walk with a limp you're a gimp Yep. Hey, that that rhymes. Cool. (laughs) I know. Um, and you know, I've had, I've had, um, again, people use that term to describe like, oh, I'm such a gimp today because I'm so sore after that workout. Like, no, (laughs) no, that's not what that means. That'll go away. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but you know, at the same time, like, I don't know. I just made a really cool little rhyme there unintentionally. Maybe <laughs> I should use this more. I don't, it's just fun. But the one word I don't ever want to touch other than the R word is invalid. Like, look mm-hmm. at it. It's, it's exactly the same as invalid. Can we not mm-hmm. see why this is a problem? Um, yeah. The whole thing about being disabled um, is that we are often seen as less than human or subhuman or not worth anything because we can't produce like an able-bodied neurotypical person, or we can't uh, participate like an able-bodied neurotypical person. Um, so yeah, invalid really sums that up succinctly. Yeah. And it's just all kinds of wrong. I think it should like, okay, idiot isn't an I word, but in, invalid should be. I, I, I don't, I don't ever want to see anyone use that word. I, mm-hmm. I want that one to go away. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Misty? 
No, I completely agree about invalid. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but the other ones I totally understand reclaiming. Um, my my parents were both uh, injured and I had were forced into retirement in their early fifties, and so it was my dad first, and he called himself a gimp after a knee replacement, and and he does still limp. It's permanent, and it's he's had five knee replacements now. Yeah, you only Your have two knees. How do you get five knee replacements? <laughs> anyway, my mom soon followed after a couple of years later, she had an injury and also needed a knee replacement. She's like, well, now there's two of us. That makes us a gang. We're the Crips. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so they, they go on nightly walks. And so he'd say like, all right, let's go out and, you know, patrol our territory, look for some bloods. <laughs> like he really takes it to the extreme. <laughs> but I mean, they have fun with it, even I though they were both that. really upset about being forced into retirement. You know, it's just a part of who they are now. <laughs> I love I love the ownership of that. Uh, Colin, yeah, I I uh, really really it, I struggled with coming to terms with what crip walk actually meant because I thought that was like walking with a limp and everything, you know, <laughs> naivety of youth, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that's actually like refers to the gang, the Crips, and I didn't know that either. So like I, yeah. you know. I, I really want to like dive into the history of like how they came up with their gang name and everything. Yeah. Cause like, is it solitude with the disabled? Cause I mean, that's <laughs> kind of cool in a, like way, I to doubt it, positive, but it would be awesome. way to put a positive spin on that. Right. <laughs> like, I don't know, but that's, I guess maybe that's part of what makes Cribble more acceptable is that mm-hmm. you've seen you see crip in a lot of contexts like i've seen crip used as an as a abbreviation for cripple but then you also have the bloods of the crips and that's you know that's in enough rap songs and movies and everything that you can argue it's it's a well established cultural reference um so maybe that makes that word more palatable to me because it's something i'm kind of exposed to already yeah. Yeah, maybe. Um in also the... South Park episode. I mean Oh yes. <laughs> that, that did a lot to blur those lines. <laughs> um in the show special, uh, which is very R-rated by the way, but otherwise very good. Yeah. Um, oh, I love that show. Yeah. yeah. So they heard there's a group of disabled people and they call themselves the Crips yes. too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's interesting, too, is the one character introduces himself. Oh, yeah, I'm autistic, but just a touch. He doesn't say hi, functioning. See, that's a good way. (laughs) There's your alternative. And then the other guy says, well, I have CP, but just a touch, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, wow, this has been an amazing conversation. And I hope you guys have enjoyed participating in this as well. And I would love to have you guys back and continue more conversations about the many different topics surrounding disability, disability awareness, accessibility, all of that. So I just want to thank you ladies for joining me today. And just, yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate you participating in this. Thanks, Jen. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. And is there anything that you would maybe want your listeners to take away from today's conversation? Well, just circling back, you know, if you're not sure about something, ask. Mm-hmm. Um, 
usually we're willing to have a conversation on the subject. And, you know, I, I do agree with you. This book is a good starting resource. Uh, but again, um, also on the subject of reclaiming words, you don't need to be offended on our behalf if we use those words to describe ourselves. It's okay. And it's okay to laugh if you think it's funny. Um, yeah. You know, uh, sometimes that helps break down the barriers that um, sometimes prevent people from having constructive conversations like this. And ultimately, my goal is to facilitate more of those. Yeah. Um Intention matters would be the overarching message I would like people to get that if your intentions are good, all will be forgiven. Like just take correction and understand. Yeah, there are politically correct ways to go about referring to things, but not everyone knows them and they're constantly changing. And not all autistic people want to be called autistic people. Some of them prefer autist. You know, not all disabled people hate the word cripple. So you really can't know until you develop a personal relationship with people. Absolutely. Very good. Well, thank you again, ladies. Thank, thank you. you. It was fun. And this month, we have the pleasure of welcoming Jenny Brendler from Community Living Connections, a nonprofit organization in Madison, and she fills us in on what they do. Their website, which can be found on our link tree in the episode description, is www.clconnections.org. Thank you, Jenny, for joining me today. I appreciate you taking the time to let us know what Community Living Connections does. So please tell us a little bit about yourself and the organization. My name is Jenny Brenler. I'm the Recruiting and Communications Manager at Community Living Connections. And I've been here for five and a half years. Um, and Community Living Connections, we're just a local nonprofit who originated in 2004 in the Dane County area. Um, we actually expanded in 2019 to also include Platteville, Beaverdam, and Fond du Lac to support more people. Uh, and what we do is we support um, adults 18 years and older who experience intellectual, developmental, and physical disabilities so that they can live independently in their own homes. Um, and participate in their community as independently as possible. So um, it, that looks very different for each person. You know, everybody's um, abilities and disabilities uh, require different supports. So it's a very person-centered, person-focused support system, uh, very individualized and especially self-directed. So each person we support is self-directing their own lives and their goals that we're helping them achieve. That's awesome. That's such great work. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> are there any misconceptions about what the organization does or why an organization like this is needed? That's a great question. Um, there are some common misconceptions when talking with uh, job seekers who want to get involved in this type of field. Um they oftentimes will assume that this is a nursing job, that they would need a CNA. Um, sometimes people who are in the field who've done this work before might think, oh, this is a facility. This is a group home. Um, and we're not those things. Uh, we do help people with medical and you know health supports. Um, and we do help people who might live with other individuals who have disabilities, maybe as their roommates. 
But um, the supports we provide are, like I said, very person-centered in their own homes. So we are throughout the Madison community, throughout Stoughton, in each person's apartment, in their homes. We knock on the door. We ask, can we come in? I'm here for my shift to help you. Um, and it's uh, much more empowering that way. You know, it's not our house. It's not our apartment. It's helping um, preserve that dignity and respect that, you know, people we support just need a little assistance. It's um, nothing that, you know, we have the you know, we have the privilege to support them. Um, so that's, I think that's the difference that we have a little bit. Um, and also that goes along with, we're not doing things for people we support. If if someone's capable of, of doing a certain thing, our staff are encouraged to encourage them to do those things for themselves. Uh, so we do with, we don't do for. If they're fully capable, we will um, support them to do those things themselves. So. Uh, just a couple of misconceptions. Um, I'm sure there are many more out there because, you know, it's not as commonly known about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. I think that's a great way to clarify it is especially the uh, helping, you know, doing with them instead of for them. I think that's very important. And I could see that being a big misconception. So thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Um, and then how can people get involved or show show support? Well, I mentioned um, that we are hiring. We um, support people in their daily lives. So there's often going to be many openings that we have available as the seasons change, as students go back to school. Um, So if anybody wants to get involved doing something, helping their community members and their neighbors who have disabilities, uh, there is no experience required to get involved in this type of work. And there's no minimum number of hours either. So if somebody just wants you know, if you're retired and you want something to do and give back to your community and build some more connections, or, you know, this is a great opportunity for just about anybody because we will train, we will um, support our staff to live their best lives too, so that they can then in turn support people we support to live their best lives. Um, And for, you know, the working families, we have excellent benefits too. Uh, I think that's really amazing. Um, If, if, Somebody's looking for a career change. Being able to um, have a health insurance with zero deductible is really amazing. I think that's definitely one way if you want to get involved and help support people with disabilities directly. Other ways that you could get involved, you could follow us on social media or join our e-newsletter. Um, if anybody wants to donate, we are a local nonprofit. We accept donations online. And lastly, if anybody's looking for in-home residential supports um, so that they can live their best lives independently with their disability, um, absolutely contact us and we'll help you get um, pointed in the right direction to be able to start getting residential supports too for long-term care. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'll make sure to have the the link to your website on our Linktree account, which that link will be found in the episode description so people can be directed uh, directly to your website so they can get more information on anything that they've heard today. But yeah, I just want to thank you again, Jenny, for joining us and providing us a little bit more information on the Community Living Connections and appreciate it. And thank you for all the work that you and the organization do. All right. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
Be sure to sign up for CLC's newsletter and follow them on social media. They have an amazing event coming up this July called Fishing Has No Boundaries. This was an annual event up until the last few years, but this year is their comeback year. So be sure to look for their website in our link tree for more information on this upcoming event that's sure to reel you in.